Last week, I began our discussion in the book of Ruth with the question, how involved is God in your life? This week, I'd like to ask a different question. And that question is, how engaged are you with what God is doing in your life? How engaged are you with what God is doing in your life? Uh, This question really gets at uh, the differences between God's sovereign action in our lives and our free will. How do the two interact with one another? How do they complement one another? Uh, Perhaps you've heard this parable before, but allow me to tell it to you briefly. There was once uh, a man who, uh, upon great rains and flooding in his town, went to the top of his house and began to pray as the waters rose higher and higher. And he prayed that the Lord would save him. And he believed earnestly that the Lord would answer those prayers. Uh, After some time, someone came on a rowboat and said, jump in, I'll row you to safety. And he said, no need, my friend. I have prayed to the Lord, and I know that he will answer my prayer and save me. So the rowboat went on. Uh, Not long after that, uh, another steamboat came along and said, sir, please jump and save yourself from the waters. And he repeated again, there's no need, friend. The Lord has heard my prayers, and I know he will answer them. So the steamboat went on. Not long after that, the waters nearly reached the roof of the house and a helicopter flew over his head, threw down a rope and said, Sir, climb up the rope. Let us bring you to safety. And he said, No, the Lord will save me. He's in control. And so the helicopter left. Soon after, the waters rose and the man died. And when he got to heaven, he asked the Lord, Why didn't you save me? I prayed. And the Lord said, my friend, I tried to save you three times. I sent a rowboat, a steamboat, and a helicopter. What more could you ask for? It's kind of a silly story. But it gets at the idea uh, that God can sovereignly work in our lives, and yet we still can have the free will to react or engage in his sovereign plans. And I bring that story up because that is very much... I think, what we see in chapter 2 of the book of Ruth. Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 2. If you're new to the Bible, it's the eighth book, so it's towards the beginning. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided underneath the chairs, you'll find the passage on page 222, page 222. And to remind you where we are in the story, the book as a whole is a book that documents real events in the life of a family from a town called Bethlehem. Uh, It's a story about great tragedy, uh, as seen in just the first few verses of chapter 1. Naomi, who's Ruth's mother-in-law, loses everything. Uh, Her family uh, and her husband Elimelech leave Bethlehem because of a famine, and they go into Moab, which could be considered kind of an enemy nation uh, to Israel at that time. And then uh, Elimelech and his two sons, after taking Moabite wives, uh, all three of them die. 
leaving Naomi in her old age without a husband, without sons to care for her, uh, and with two foreign daughters-in-law. She's left defenseless in a foreign land, and then she hears that the famine has ceased in, in the promised land in Israel, so she returns. But before she does, she attempts to push away her daughters and to send them back to their homeland, Moab, so that they can have better lives. Uh, one of them leaves, Orpah leaves, after weeping bitterly multiple times. The other, Ruth, who the book is named after, clings to Naomi. And she demonstrates by doing that an acute understanding that to choose Naomi and to choose the land of promise is to choose life. It is to trust in the God of Naomi. It's to forsake her family and her friends and her upbringing and everything that she left in Moab, including her gods, and to instead trust in the promises of God Almighty. In chapter 1, Ruth displayed the radical discipleship that characterizes every Christian. Uh, she counted the world as lost, rubbish, for the sake of the God of Israel, trusting that it is better to follow God even in the worst of circumstances than to choose the best of circumstances and be outside of His promises. She chose the land of pro promise over Moab, over the world. Well, despite this amazing display of faith, little is resolved at the end of chapter 1. Naomi returns and she asks others to call her Mara, which means bitter, because she said that the, the Lord has dealt bitterly with her. And the question that the reader is left asking after chapter 1 is how will these two women who come into the promised land empty-handed, how will they survive? Uh, what future awaits them? Will Elimelech's, Naomi's late husband, will Elimelech's family line end and be extinct with Naomi and Ruth? What chance do these two widows, one of them being from Moab, have, if any? With those questions in mind, let's read our text this morning. Ruth 2, verses 1 through 23. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go and glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young men, woman. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. 
Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also put some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean. Do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw that what she had gleaned, She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over from being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I worked today was Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. At the beginning of last week's sermon, I mentioned the fact that many see Ruth and Boaz as the main characters of the story. And in some ways they are. Uh, But I also mentioned that uh, often overlooked are the main characters of Naomi and the Lord. Uh, Most of the verses in chapter 2 record dialogue between Ruth and Boaz. But my goal is to show you how their dialogue and even the events of this chapter are part of uh, something bigger that the Lord is doing. And so the big takeaway or the main idea of this chapter is this. The Lord provides a redeemer for those who take shelter under his wings. The Lord provides a redeemer for those who take shelter under his wings. For Ruth, we see that Boaz, who is called the Redeemer in this passage, uh, uh, is, is her Redeemer and provider. For the Christian, the compassion of Boaz foreshadows the love of Christ poured out for us on the cross. So my prayer is that this chapter would encourage you that no matter what you're going through in life, there is a refuge under the wings of the Almighty. 
And in order to tease out that main idea, I'd like to draw your attention to four things in this chapter. I'll try to repeat them as I go through them. The first thing I want you to see is sweet providence. Sweet providence. Uh, the story of Ruth is uh, the story of bitter providence made sweet, uh, as Piper so eloquently put. But so far in the story, we've only heard about the bitter providence to Naomi uh, that she has faced. She herself has recognized that misfortune that she has uh, come, through, come to by the hand of the Lord. If you look at chapter 1, verse 13, you'll see Naomi say it's exceedingly bitter to her. Uh, that the Almighty has brought calamity upon her. You'll also see it again in chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. She says, The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Uh, we can observe that Naomi, interestingly enough, doesn't appear to blame God in these circumstances. She doesn't hate Him. She doesn't even question why these things have happened to her. She merely states them as fact that the Lord is behind even the bitter circumstances of her life. And while the end of chapter 1 left Naomi returning empty, there is a small ray of hope that they came at the beginning of a barley harvest. Now, the author gives us a hint that sweet providence is around the corner in the very first verse of this chapter. Now, the historian tells us about who Boaz is before Ruth even meets him. Uh, verse 1, we read, Boaz is a relative of Naomi's, the clan of Elimelech, her late husband. And that small detail has huge ramifications. Suddenly, Naomi is not alone in the world. Uh, there's a distant relative in Bethlehem, which means potentially someone who could provide for and care for her. It's like an early sunrise. After the darkness has gradually lifted, that first ray of sunlight pokes through the horizon. That's what verse 1 is like in this passage. The author wants to make abundantly clear that the Lord is orchestrating all of these events by what he says in verse 3. Speaking of Ruth, he says, So she set out, went out and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come upon the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Of all the fields in Israel, she happens to go to the same field as a distant relative of Naomi. By speaking this way, the author, who most certainly is a Jew, is kind of sarcastically showing us how unlikely it is that this would happen by chance. Because God rules over all things and works through all things, this is something that God has ordained. So in introducing Boaz as a family member and the way Ruth ended up gleaning from his field, the author is showing us the sweet providence of the Lord. That even in the most dire and uncircumcircumcircumcircumcircumcircumcircumcircumcircumcircumcircumcircumcircumcircumcircumcircumcircumcircumcircumcircumcircumcircumcircumcircumcircumcircumcircumcircumcircumcircumcircumcircumcircum
Uh, Romans 8.31 says that if God is for us, who can be against us? It means that the Christian can have hope no matter what circumstances you're in in life. God's always working behind the scenes whether or not you realize it. Uh, one, ap- one application for us this morning to God's sweet providence is that we can eagerly look forward to heaven where we see what God has been doing throughout our lives and throughout all history. Now, conversely, it means we don't need to be anxious when we don't know what God is doing. Perhaps you don't know why you have the job you have or why the job you want eludes you. You can make speculations until the cows come home and it's, and it's good to seek the God's eye view of things in your life that can ground us sometimes. But we don't need to be anxious if we don't know. And God in his wisdom sometimes keeps things hidden from us for our good. The truth is we don't need to know everything that God is doing. He's given us the promise that he works all things out for the good of those who love him. Second thing I want you to notice, Ruth's diligence. Ruth's diligence. Uh, This is a good time to just remind you that Ruth and Naomi are facing extreme poverty in the situation that they're in. Uh, They are in extreme need. Uh, Not only have they gone through immense heartache from losing loved ones, but Uh, they've also faced the shame of returning back from the land of of Moab empty-handed. We can tell by the town people's response to Naomi uh, that they must have looked pitiable. But now they face the difficulty of surviving without men around. And so Ruth diligently goes out into the fields to glean for herself, and I assume for Naomi too, who is likely too old to be doing that kind of work. Uh, Gleaning in the fields uh, makes it sound like she just went and got a job uh, for one of the field owners or something like that, but that's actually not the case at all. That's not what's happening. She's doing what beggars and uh, homeless foreigners do. Uh, She takes advantage of a provision that's built into Israel's law that you can read about back in Leviticus 19. The Lord instructed the people of Israel to be holy and to love their neighbors they are also to treat the sojourner like, uh, and, the, and the foreigner respectively because the Lord says, you were once sojourners, foreigners, and I rescued you out of the land of Egypt and brought you to the promised land. And one of the ways that they're to be generous to foreigners is that they're to leave the edges of their fields unharvested so that those in need could come and gather from them. It was a little bit like a tithe for the poor. The Lord gave Israel the land, and he commanded them to be kind to sojourners because they were once in a similar position until he rescued them. And so Ruth somehow knows about these laws, uh, most likely through Naomi, and so she takes it upon herself to go and glean from the fields, uh, hopeful, though you can tell there's still some uncertainty uh, about safety concerns, uh, uncertainty about whether or not she'll find favor in the eyes of the person who owns the field. And so she goes out and works diligently. Uh, and we can tell from uh, that description of the, the worker that she came early in the morning and had little breaks. Uh, Ruth is hardworking and selfless. Uh, and these are the characteristics that make an impression on Boaz when he discovers her. Uh, Ruth is an amazing individual. Uh, I've not mentioned this yet, but 
Uh, it is fascinating that in the Hebrew order of the Old Testament, it's different than our English order. Uh, the book of Ruth is placed right after the book of Proverbs. And if you remember how the book of Proverbs ends, it ends with this glorious vision of a godly woman in Proverbs 31. And then look who fits that description in the following chapter, Ruth. It's amazing. In verse 17, we read that she gleaned the field until evening, uh, producing an ephah of barley. Uh, she worked from early morning with few breaks until the evening. Uh, she's a hard and earnest worker. And we don't really know how much an ephah uh, is. Some say it's about 30 pounds, which would be a lot. Scholars kind of disagree on what the exact uh, amount it is. But it's clear from the story that it's an impressive amount to bring home after a day's work. Uh, and credit goes to Ruth for diligence and Boaz's liberal provisions for her in verse 16. Uh, Naomi's response says it all, doesn't it? What field did you go to? The answer to that rhetorical question is one with lots of grain. Uh, but we, we sell Ruth short if we only highlight her physical diligence. Because Boaz commands her in, or commends her rather in verse 11 for her commitment to Naomi. He says, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. How you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Ruth is an amazing individual. Uh, she is described as uh, one who uh, has chesed or covenant loyalty, covenant love which is a word that all throughout the Bible is used to describe God's love and God's commitment uh, to us. Uh, think about Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your chesed, or in our English language, it's usually steadfast love. Ruth is characterized by that in chapter 1, and then Boaz recognizes it. She has a reputation in the land. She shows remarkable understanding to trust in the Lord and a resolve to stay by Naomi's side, diligence to provide for her when there are no males around to do so. She's shown godly love to Naomi by clinging to her, and she's not been lazy or entitled in the fields, but diligent. There is an approach uh, of some that would treat that provision from Leviticus 19 as some kind of entitlement, uh, but that's not what we get from Ruth at all. She's also a Moabite as the author reminds us over and over again. Uh, she has shown, as a foreign woman, covenant loyalty. Notice that in God's promises uh, that Ruth is clearly aware of, uh, it does not cause her to be passive in her circumstances. Uh, God's providences actually propel Ruth into action. It doesn't paralyze her or leave her waiting around for things to happen like the man in the story I mentioned earlier. And similarly, like Ruth in this story, we as Christians must actively pursue godliness, constantly drawing near to God through His Word and in prayer, uh, in parenting, at work, in old age, or as teenagers. God's sovereignty has always propelled Christians into action because we know that God will provide for our needs and sustain us. Another point of application we can take from this passage uh, is accented by Ruth being a Moabite, and that is that the gospel is for everyone. 
The gospel is for everyone. The people of God, uh, Abraham's descendants, are not just ethnic Israelites, but those who are made righteous by faith in God. Ruth actually resembles Abraham in a lot of ways in this story. It's just like Abraham, she leaves her home country and her people, her father's household, to go to the land of covenant promise. She shows herself to be a true daughter of Abraham by her faith. And the same is true of Christians, as we read earlier from Ephesians 2. Paul also speaks of this in Galatians, where he says that if you are in Christ, you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to promise. Third thing I want you to see in this passage, Boaz's kindness. So sweet providence, Ruth's diligence, and then the third thing is Boaz's kindness. And Boaz is really, the, he's the star of this chapter. Uh, this chapter is, uh, goes in detail about his actions. He's introduced as a relative and a member of the same clan as Elimelech. And Naomi adds in verse 20 that he is one of their redeemers, which I suppose I should explain what that means uh, at this point in time. It simply means that he is a family member who potentially can care for them. Uh, another law that is built into uh, the law of Israel, their structure, is a way to ensure that the land stays within the families that it was given to, that it is handed to, down to generations. And that's accomplished uh, one way among many others by something that is called the leveret marriage. Uh, levy just means brother-in-law, and so it's the, the, marriage, the marriage of the brother-in-law. Uh, and this is explained in Deuteronomy 25. Uh, but the leveret marriage is where a brother of a deceased man uh, takes the widow as his wife in order to provide an heir for the family. Now, typically, it's assumed that the brother uh, taking this responsibility to care for the, un, for, for the widow is unmarried. Uh, and I recognize that to our ears, uh, this, might, uh, this idea might sound strange. Uh, so let me just point out a few things about leveret marriage. Um, first, this type of provision can be found in the history of most cultures. Uh, this was actually a common uh, thing among people groups, typically because in the ancient world, a family survived uh, by carrying on the family business, which you could only do if you had male children who could work. Second, this law was put in place as a way to protect and provide for widows who would otherwise be vulnerable. Uh, now, you, once again, you can read about the law in Deuteronomy 25, but I think it's worth mentioning that marriage or relations outside of this kind of circumstance uh, are not allowed in Leviticus 18. Uh, that's the basic idea behind Boaz being a redeemer in Ruth. Although in some, in some instances, a redeemer can also be someone who uh, buys land, for example, to redeem the land for family as well. But by being a relative of Naomi's late husband, uh, he is by nature a potential redeemer, uh, something that we didn't even think was possible until now. And what a guy Boaz is. Uh, Boaz is uh, an honest, godly man, there are signs that he is uh, an elder to those around him, just by the way he's described, and I mean uh, an older generation. He's called a worthy man in verse 1. And just look at the way he greets his servants in verse 4. 
He says, the Lord be with you. And they respond back, the Lord bless you. This is a man who has a certain kind of God-centeredness about him, uh, that the Lord makes it into his thoughts, into his greetings, his work, and even the lips of his employees. And these greetings are wonderfully comforting if we slow down and think about what's being said. Uh, First, you'll notice that Lord is in all caps in our English translation. Uh, That means it's the covenant name Yahweh being used, uh, the the unique name of God as as revealed to Moses in the burning bush. But second, this exchange resembles uh, what some have called the Aaronic blessing from number six. Words that have been cherished by God-fearers all throughout history. This is what it says. Quote, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the, the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. Uh, That's what Boaz's greeting does. He puts the Lord's name on the people. And Boaz, when he notices Ruth, asks who she is. Uh, He already knew her reputation based on how he commends her in verse 11. But Boaz takes the opportunity to then lavish her with kindness. And you can feel his care for her in the way that he speaks so tenderly in verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go and glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. He calls her his daughter. Uh, He relates beautifully and compassionately to a foreign widow because he has heard of her covenant loyalty to her mother-in-law. He also tells her to look no further for her food. Do not look for provision anywhere else. I have everything that you need. I will protect you. I will give you water. Don't go anywhere else. Don't put yourself in danger. My young men will protect you. She doesn't need to worry about being assaulted, which would have been a concern out in the fields, Uh, somewhat away from the rest of civilization, the town. That's that's why he says, set your eyes on the field, so she doesn't have to be on the lookout, constantly concerned about that. And he also provides water for her, which is a small detail, but it's extraordinary in that time. Uh, Drawing water was just simply something that generally the women would do for the men who were working. So the fact that he has his young men draw water for her, uh, he is truly treating her like a daughter of his own. But that's not all he does. In verse 14, he even invites her to a meal, uh, which is another unexpected gesture of kindness. Uh, He's already letting her reap from the harvest, bountifully, we could say, giving her protection. But inviting someone to a meal, uh, especially someone who's not a servant, uh, was was an act of hospitality. Uh, Generally, it was reserved for some kind of celebration, normally to celebrate a special occasion. But for a woman in Ruth's position, the end of verse 14 is beautiful. It says, She ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. How abundantly, 
had the Lord provided for this poor widow. It reminds me of the time Jesus fed the 5,000, where it says specifically that they all ate and were satisfied, and there was plenty left over. It's a reminder that God provides abundantly for all our needs. It's a reminder that Jesus is the bread of life, and whoever eats of him will never hunger again, but will be satisfied forever. Ruth experiences these truths in her life which foreshadow what we know to be true in Christ. Boaz goes even further after that, if it were possible. He lavishes more kindness on her by then instructing the men uh, to set out bundles for her to glean from. Basically, do the work for her so that she can just follow behind and pick everything up uh, and collect it. This is the reason she comes home to Naomi with so much from her harvesting. But Boaz's kindness to Ruth is most profoundly seen in verse 12, which is really, the, I think, the central verse of this chapter. He blesses her by saying, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. His blessing shows to us the motivation for his kindness to her. He recognizes the sacrifice she made for Naomi and then rightly interprets her actions as taking refuge under the very wings of God. These are important terms. They resemble, uh, or they liken God rather, to a mother bird sheltering her little ones under her wings of protection. The Lord is a shelter, a refuge. Boaz understands his kindness to Ruth even more profoundly as part of the Lord's protection, as an extension of his care for her. Through his resources and protection, she is under the wings of the Almighty. That's the purpose of the laws of Leviticus 19 that I mentioned. Because God rescued his people and gave them land, they were supposed to be kind to others and sharing it with them. We often view God's actions as something outside of ourselves that we can't control, and they are at least that. But Boaz appeared to see his own provision as an extension of God's to Ruth. Well, friends, a few things that we can apply to our own lives from this passage. First, as believers in all of these same truths, we should fill our language, our everyday language, with God. Fill our everyday language with God. Do you have the kind of God-centeredness displayed in Boaz so clearly? The Lord be with you is an excellent way for Christians to greet one another. It speaks His promise into our lives. Second, show compassion abundantly. Uh, we know in the New Testament, Jesus says that those who have been forgiven much love much. But notice that Boaz... Uh, as an upright and worthy citizen of Israel, he does not act like a Pharisee. He does not say, glean this far and no further in my field. Instead, he lavishes grace upon Ruth. We Christians should always err on the side of grace as well and entrust the rest to the Lord, assuming the best in others, trusting the Lord to use our kindness to bless others in front of us. The fourth thing I want you to see in this passage is Naomi's answered prayer. Naomi's answered prayer. 
Ruth packs up her things from the day of harvesting. She returns in the evening. And when Naomi sees what she's brought back, she is astonished. And I can imagine Naomi waiting for Ruth all day, being very nervous for her, uh, wondering if she's okay, wondering if she's safe, if she's treated okay as a, as a foreigner, whether she would be able to gather enough. So there was probably a sigh of relief when she saw her returning in the evening, as well as surprise to how much she had brought back for them. And after Ruth tells Naomi where she was, that the name of the owner of the field's name was Boaz, it's like gears just begin to turn in Naomi's mind. She knows this man. She remembers that he's a family member of Elimelech. And so she tells Ruth he's not just a good man. This is, again, right, cues by the, by the author, I think, of the Lord's providence and involvement in the situation. Uh, of all people, this is not just a kind man, honorable man. This is a relative, one of our redeemers. And then look what she says in verse 20. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. This is not just a prayer of praise or thanks. is isn't just a celebration. Naomi is praising God for an answered prayer. Did you notice the similarity in the language to what she said in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, when she initially tried to send off Ruth and Orpah? You'll recall when she did so, she said to them, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest. It's the same language. In chapter 1, she prays that the Lord would be kind to Ruth as Ruth has been to the dead, and now she praises God, though she assumed that would happen in Moab. She now praises God for Boaz, who has dealt kindly with Ruth, and thereby the deceased husbands as well. Naomi thought that the Lord would answer these one way, and he provided another. The Lord answered the prayer through Boaz in the promised land. Isn't the Lord's providence amazing? One Puritan by the name of John Flavel, he was a pastor in the 1600s. He said that the providence of God is like Hebrew words. It can be read only backwards. And if you didn't know Hebrew, you read from right to left. So it just doesn't make sense at all if you read it the way we read English. But I think that's a beautiful way to understand how we see the Lord acting in the life of Ruth. As we look back, even already, two chapters into the story, the way the Lord has has directed their steps into the care of Boaz. Well, Ruth goes on to tell Naomi about how Boaz had taken her in, seemingly showing unmerited favor to her. You might have asked, uh, as you were reading this story, why in the world has Boaz been so kind to Ruth? I mean, sure, she showed good character with Naomi and all, but, but why did Boaz show sh- such grace? One author put it beautifully. He said, Boaz is kind to Ruth because God prepared his heart for her. Just like he led Boaz to check on his workers the same morning, Ruth stumbled upon his field. The chapter closes with a ray of hope. But the situation is not yet resolved. 
Ruth has been temporarily cared for in, in an incredible way. And the author has told us that Boaz is a potential redeemer for them. But the future of Naomi and Ruth still hangs in the balance. And notice that the chapter ends with the end of the harvest. We're left asking what's going to happen next. But a Christ-like figure has stepped onto the scene. For now, I can at least tell you that Boaz's actions in this chapter foreshadow an even greater act of compassion on unworthy foreigners. The worthy man, Christ, provided for us his very life so that we could have a home with him forever in eternity. He did not have fields to offer his followers. Instead, he told them to feed on himself. And he instructs all who believe in him to remember his death as a symbol of our redemption. And it's that very reality that we get to celebrate this morning by partaking in the Lord's Supper. Before we do, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we give you praise that you sovereignly work through all things for the good of those who love you. Lord, we thank you for the good examples of Ruth and Boaz, Ruth's diligence and Boaz's kindness and provision. Lord, we thank you for the way that Boaz foreshadows the greater love and sacrifice of Christ. Lord, we pray that we would daily seek refuge under your wings. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.